This is Chaos Cast, Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community help, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or for short, Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash chaos. I'm Sean Goggins, and with us today are Kate Stewart. Hi, I'm Kate Stewart. I work at the Linux Foundation on strategic programs here and have been an active uh, member of the Chaos Project since the start and caring about risk metrics. Also with us today is Georg Link. Hi everyone, Georg here. I'm the director of sales at Biturgia, a co-founder of the Chaos Project, co-lead of the board and maintainer of several parts of the Chaos Project. Good to be with you today. And it wouldn't be a Chaos cast if we didn't have guests. We have two today. Our first is Frank Nagel, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And in my research, I study kind of the economics of IT and digitization with a specific focus on crowdsourcing. And I've been working for the last year or two with the Linux Foundation on the core infrastructure initiative, which we'll probably talk a bit about today. Also with us today is David A. Wheeler, Director of Open Source Supply Chain Security at the Linux Foundation. Hey there. As you noted, I'm Director of Open Source Supply Chain Security at the Linux Foundation. I lead the CII best practices badge. We'll probably mention that as we go along. In general, I'm interested in open source software or security or developing secure open source software. And I've also been interested in metrics for many, many years. Uh, Some folks even may remember a paper I did back in 2002, I think, about something called more than a gigabuck, where I did some measurements involved in open source software. And I'm very, very interested in using metrics to help make Good decisions. Thank you, everyone. We have a great cast here today. Hope you're looking forward to the Chaos Cast. Our first topic today is looking at metrics that are useful for identifying what's going on in a software configuration management system. And at a high level, software configuration management systems are used to keep track of the different versions of every single file in a computer program so that we know what changed and when and who broke something or made something better. So I'm actually not very familiar with software configuration management systems. I've never used one, so. It's a version control system and version control is part of software configuration management. So if you've used Git, you've already used, at least in part, a software configuration management system. So software configuration management is that whole process of trying to keep track, keep control of what's going on in your software, your software dependencies, your different versions, all that stuff. And obviously that's important in a modern system because almost all software depends on other software. You're going to make changes. You're going to collaborate with other people. And so you need different tools to help you out. Uh, And that also implies you're going to need to deal with the risks of them, in particular the risks when you depend on other software because some of that software is going to be great and some of that software might not be so great. And hopefully you'll make decisions about what software you'll bring in based on 
the information you can get, including metrics. And when you decide on a software configuration management system, which I think is part process and part technology, is there a difference between building the software and deploying it when people talk about what that is? Well, there are tools that you use for managing it, say, when you develop it. And then there's tools that you use for deploying it, or at least distributing it, deploying it, putting it in operations. Sometimes those are the same tools. Sometimes they aren't. Yeah, which tools you use depends on a whole lot of factors. And I think what's more important is focusing on, you know, what are you trying to accomplish rather than, you know, regardless of the tools that you use, what you want to be doing is figuring out, you know, how am I going to manage the risks so that I pull in the right program so that when other people get the software that they think is from me, that it's actually me and that sort of thing. So in a sense then metrics for software configuration management systems would help to inform good decision-making in these areas. It's probably not a magic metric, but what kinds of things do folks look for in a software configuration management system at these different parts of the open source software development lifecycle? Yeah, I, I would actually, if you don't mind me, I'm going to change that question a little because I don't yeah, think you the go. issue. Yeah, I don't think the issue is how you're going to measure your software configuration management. Although, I mean, obviously, you you should do that. But I think right now, today, there's tools you can pick your tool. The bigger problem is figuring out which components you're going to bring in to your overall system, and then use a software configuration management system to help manage that. I'm going to include package managers version control systems, and so on. You know, for a lot of languages, there's pretty much a de facto standard of if you're using, you know, JavaScript or Rust, whatever, you know, this is the probably the package manager you'll use. This is probably the version control system you'll probably use. But then the question comes down to when I want to use two function X, you know, which package do I use? And then you just have to start researching and figuring out, well, which packages should I use? So I think really what we want to do is focus on the metrics for that decision. I don't think there's a simple magic metric for that one either. And so I think I'd look for several different things. Look for information on the contributors. You know, have people contributed to that package recently? Have there been many different contributors? And those different contributors may have different motivations. We probably ought to talk later, but uh, I should notice there's a CIA survey that's hoping to capture information about projects and the motivations of its developers. We'd love for folks to participate in that because we're actually trying to gather those metrics right now on that. And we'll put that link in the show notes, of course. Let's see, different information on contributors. Yeah, how many different organizations contribute? How much do each of them uh, contribute? Because if there's one organization that does all the contributing, if that organization decides to stop, then that could be a big problem for sustainment. I was going to hop in on that and, uh, because when we, when we talk to different organizations and, and different open source groups, that, that tends to be something that they're no could be a problem, but they're not necessarily monitoring, right? And so keeping the tabs on which organizations are contributing and whether or not one is starting to dominate a project can actually help, you know, in the long run, kind of think about who, how sustainable is that project going to be? Because if all of a sudden that you know, one organization is contributing a whole lot and then all of a sudden they decide to stop, then that could be, you know, the death of the project, right? And that's never a good thing. The hidden dependencies, how much do they play a role here in risk of using open source and using packages? Do we see things that people aren't expecting? 
Absolutely. So that's something that we've discovered through our work with the the core infrastructure initiative and our initial um, work with software composition analysis companies looking to see exactly how dependencies play in uh, to the overall security of of any given project, right? And so I think, you know, as, as a coder, you, you know what projects or what dependencies you have directly, but it's often those indirect dependencies that, you know, your dependencies depend on other projects and so on and so forth that are often quite hidden. And so mapping those out in a kind of a specific process allows you to actually, you know, track those things and then understand what you're relying on, you know, are there vulnerabilities in those projects or have they stopped being maintained or various aspects that, you know, we can think about from a security perspective. And so that's certainly a metric that one would assume or or one would think is pretty important to understanding the overall security of your project. Are there high profile cases where folks did not manage those dependencies terribly well and bad things happened, Frank? Uh, yeah, so I, I think probably the most you know glaring example that, that caught a lot of uh, people off guard was this this very simple piece of open source software called Leftpad, which is you know just a, a basic little piece of code. I think it was only four or five lines that anyone could have written. But you know we're we're all a little bit lazy, and so if somebody else were already wrote it, then we might as well use it, right? And so this left pad, all it really did was help kind of make text look pretty on websites, and everybody you know just used the commands or or used the dependency, and then one day the original developer of it decided that they didn't want it you know to be out in the open anymore, and so they removed it, and so all of a sudden. Thousands of the world's websites just, you know, they didn't break, but they looked a little bit weird because the spacing was off. And, you know, and so I think that's a a good example because, you know, again, nothing really broke other than kind of a bunch of websites looking weird. But we can certainly imagine that that might be the case that, you know, there's a, a more critical underlying dependency and a similar thing happens that either, you know, for malicious or for perfectly rational reasons, a developer takes it down or, you know, we can even think about kind of, you know, just where the code is being hosted, uh, you know, crashes or something like that. If there's not great redundancies, then, you know, that type of thing could happen. And it could be more impactful than just, you know, a, a formatting error. Yeah, actually, to be fair, the, the impact was more than that. A lot of builds broke. And what that meant was that until somebody went in to try to figure out what happened, you know, a whole lot of sites suddenly couldn't be updated because they were unable to pass they they were they didn't work. So you had people who were unable to update their sites for reasons that had nothing to do directly with their site. Now, to be fair, NPM has since changed their policies to prevent this particular problem. So hooray for that. That's a good thing. But there's actually been more serious problems too. There have been at least over 100 that I know of malicious applications. In many cases, people create packages with names that look a lot like the packages you wanted to install and trying to basically fool people into installing their malicious stuff instead of the software that you really wanted. We've even had a few cases where somebody broke into a developer's account and uploaded malicious code by subverting the intended code. These are all what's called supply chain attacks. And so can you do things to counter these? Well, yes. In particular, for the type of squatting, the obvious one is, well, I guess there are some things you can do. I'll mention some metrics. The most obvious one is looking at the popularity and the downloads. A lot of repo systems will tell you how popular it is. 
if you look at something before you install it, make sure that there's not something else with a similar name that's way more popular. Because right. if there's a project that's really, really popular, and the one that was almost the same but is not popular, maybe what you've got here is not the real deal. You've got a knockoff. You've got the not the real project you were intending. And this is actually an area where metrics can help protect you from typo squatting, or from an attack, specifically typo squatting, by telling you the project that you were looking at is nowhere near as popular as the other one that is has almost the same name. So there are there are package managers like PyPy or NPM where people get this software. And in fact, in many cases, I think developers don't look if I type the name wrong, I may not ever look at the repository to find that information, right? I could I could just simply have a typo in my in my build script and be using the wrong library without even knowing it. That's right. And and really, what we need to get people to do is uh, don't do it mindlessly. Every time you add a dependency, it, it, you know it's it's a big deal. It's not the sky is falling. Don't just add a, a, a dependency with, you know, gee, I hope I spelled it right. Think carefully about every dependency you add. It doesn't have to be lengthy, but a quick search on, say, Google will give you a hint as to what the name is supposed to be. Don't just hope for it. Yeah, and uh, be careful with your containers, I think, because uh, it's very easy to keep accreting, 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 and you get some rather interesting things when you actually start pulling these containers apart, too. So this hidden dependency so, in there. Like a Docker container or something yep. similar. Yeah, Are there- getting the transparency into our supply chain and getting the software transparency is a much more visible and easily understood way. Will hopefully help these things in the future. But right now, we've got some interesting challenges when you start looking at the in the weeds. What kind of metric might help to identify that kind of really programmer error that results in malicious code being introduced into a project? Are there are there ways that we could measure the existence of that phenomena? Well, it depends on what, what you're talking about. We, we'd mentioned earlier, you know, some metrics, you know, when you're trying to look at software and deciding, hey, is it risky or not? And I, th- I think there's some answers. I mean, and part of it is, are, we, are you worrying about malicious or unintentional? Most of the security problems, the vast majority, in fact, have been not malicious. It's the unintentional. And for that stuff, really, what you should be looking for is indications of verification. You know, hey, does it have an automated test suite that's applied in every commit? What's the what's the test coverage? You know, statement and branch. If they ha- if they're measuring that and they're looking at it seriously, that can give you some hints. Do there are they using static analyzers that look for vulnerabilities? How many of those have not been fixed? How many of those have been fixed? Are there known vulnerabilities that haven't been fixed yet? That would be particularly bad. You know, measuring how long it takes them to fix a vulnerability. If it takes them six months, that's concerning. If they can do it within a week or a day, that's fabulous. So um, how many of those are in the MCI best practices badge? Oh, a few of those, actually. <laughs> 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 uh, because, because, of course, we want to try to measure. We, we try to want to identify what's important, uh, preferably, you know, ideally things you can measure, and then look at those things. So we talk about test coverage and automated tests. Well, automated tests and test coverage, using static analyzers, fixing vulnerabilities when they're found. But that's okay. These are all good things to have and good things to measure. So can we just rely on 
the CII best practices badge since it already seems like it is the checklist you just mentioned? I don't know if I rely as a sole measure, but certainly the, the point of that best CI best practices badge is to help both projects figure out what to do and also to help other people figure out you know, whether or not the project's applying good practices or not. So, so if, if you're running an open source project, I would urge you a run over and uh, start getting yourself a best practices badge. I imagine you'll put that in the uh, show notes. But yeah, <laughs> but we would love to see We've got over 3,000 participating now. We'd love to see more. Earlier this year, or actually late last year, I guess, we, there was a survey of the most popular software that came out recently. And, you know, there's some top, top packages that were identified through, you know, the analysis that um, had come from, you know, the scanners and everything else. Of those packages, how many of them have badges? I'm sorry to say that none of those top ones have uh, well, worked on a badge. And that's definitely something that uh, we want to, work on the next year or so. But I think, part, to be fair, it wasn't until recently that that report came out because they had to do a lot of dependency analysis to figure out what those top ones were. And I think a lot of people were surprised because when you, you we talked about earlier about those transitive dependencies, the, the top projects don't tend to be the ones that everybody's heard of. We, I, I know that Lodash is something a lot of folks heard of, but a lot of those projects are because somebody depends on something which depends on something which depends on something. And it ends up being these, they're important, but they're not necessarily the names you most hear of. And, and, and Frank, you want to talk more about the, the analysis that you did and the results of that? Sure. Yeah. So as, as alluded to, we worked with uh, a couple of software composition analysis companies to, to get you know, kind of the insights that they had into various software usage across thousands of companies. And so we're, you know, we're looking at the internal software that they're developing and the dependencies that they're working on. So, you know, what open source are they calling directly and what packages are they calling directly versus those, as we kind of talked about, that are more kind of these hidden dependencies. And indeed, we found, you know, that, that many of the, the packages that bubbled to the top when we've started looking at these kind of transitive dependencies, these hidden dependencies, were indeed things that uh, some were, you know, not surprising, but others were actually nobody had ever heard of them before, or at least uh, on our team. Not, not that they'd never heard from the, of them, but, you know, hadn't realized that these were, you know, super critical and going to be amongst the top 10 used packages of, of everything that we were seeing, right? So we're, that, that report's available. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes because uh, the URL on that one is, is rather long, but it's available from the coreinfrastructure.org operation. And so when we looked at these packages, we're, we're hoping that in the future that will give guidance to kind of investments for, you know, for exactly efforts like the CII Best Badging Initiative, but also for organizations that want to help contribute to kind of the health and, and well-being of open source to give them a little bit more guidance of, of where, you know, the projects that would have the most, you know, kind of large impact can be found. And so in the future, next year, we're going to release another version of that report and we're working with more companies this year. So we're hoping to be able to actually release much more detailed data in terms of usage so that folks can have a better sense of, of you know, where these packages are and what packages are being used and, and how to think about best, you know, securing them for the future. Thanks, Frank. When it comes to packages and dependencies and which ones are more popular, in the course of the project that Kate described, one of the things that I observed is that there are 
oftentimes many different packages inside of a single GitHub repository or Git repository. So the best practices badge, I think, is focused principally on the repository. And I'm wondering if anyone on the panel has started thinking about how do we assess things that are within a, a repository. So when a package manager like NPM or PIP is distributing a package, but there are 40 other packages in that same repository, what what challenges does that pose or from a metrics perspective? Or have, have you not observed that yourselves? I, I, I don't. I've not experienced this. So, I've not paid attention to it. Yeah. Okay. Like the, uh, I'm not seeing it either, but my background is more down in the embedded land with right. the, the single binaries. And so there usually tends to be a bit of a mapping. However, I do know that for people who've been doing a lot of code scanning and things like that, from the licensing perspective, they're frequently encountering snippets of things that have been code posed together. And then there's a, if, if there's been something that has been in the original piece that was composed, you lose track of it. So tracking all these snippets, is I think mm -hmm. an element of this that you're talking about. And I think the infrastructure could certainly be made better. Yeah. And it's very hard to start calling them out. Yeah. But that, the whole composable software, you know, tracking vulnerabilities through composable software is going to be a big challenge down the road, no question. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can make some comments. I'm not sure if they exactly get to what you're asking about. But, you know, certainly, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the various metrics, things you would look for. One of the things you'd look for is licensing. When you bring in software, though, it's probably very, very, it's, it is a very good idea to double check, hey, is the license what you expect it to be and that sort of thing. On the, the repo side, I don't think the repo folks are having any trouble in terms of storing information. No. Uh, but there is a legitimate problem in terms of, you know, you know, do you know that what you've got in the repo is what you're supposed to have? I would I encourage, and I'm hoping in the longer term, we can work more with the folks who manage the repos, you know, PyPy and NPM and so on, to do things like encouraging more use of 2FA. So, for example, to make sure the developers, when, when a developer makes a change to the software and gets distributed, it's actually from that developer. That would help counter some of the uh, malicious attacks I mentioned earlier. Increasing reproducible builds. So, for example, one thing I'd love to see would be when a repo says, hey, I, you know, are you, you know, uh, when some developer says, I want to upload my updated software, the developer uploads their software, the repo then reproduces the build and checks to see if they're the same. If they're the same, then that's a good confirmation that in fact, this is okay. And that would actually counter some other attacks because what we've seen in some cases is the malicious code distributed by a, a package management system is in fact, not what was posted on, say, GitHub or GitLab. And so by using reproducible builds, we can counter that too. So I think there's things that the folks who manage the repositories can do. I think there's folks that, who develop package managers can do. And there's also steps that folks who are pulling in the packages need to do to verify that, in fact, they're bringing in software that they, that they want to verify, that they want to bring in that's actually going to be a good, not bad thing for them. Software quality and the incorporation of packages that are the ones that we intend, these, these kinds of risks, whether they're malicious or accidental, are a large component of what we're looking at. We, we briefly, I think it was David or Kate, dis dis discussed the notion of licensing. And I think that poses a particularly, it's a different kind of risk. 
And I'm wondering maybe if Kate or David want to talk a little bit about what license risk is on a project in contrast with some of these other risks. Okay. So license risk is open source is open source because of the license you're taking and using it under. Okay. And people have been kind enough to put their work under a license, an open source license so you can use it. But the license has certain terms that you do need to apply to. And if you can't identify what licenses are there, it's sort of hard to apply to the terms. Frequently, people will cut and paste and ignore things. And then we have another set of problems from that, which is, oh, I've gone and used this code from this license and I'm not respecting the terms and I'm not even copied in who the copyright holder was or the licensing, which is a bit rude, to put it mildly. So there's issues where if people have found that they've used code inadvertently, someone might come after you from a legal perspective, especially if you haven't given them credit and removed their copyrights. And that is not something that should, what anyone should ever do. And you should always give credit to where you've gotten the source from. And then certainly from the licensing, each licensing has different terms and you should just need to apply that term. So you need to know what's there. So having that transparency of being able to understand what's in your software bill of materials, including licensing information, is I think a key piece that has been way too manual for way too long. And improving um, the automation and making it so that we can automate this sort of information and have an accurate software bill of materials in standard form so that the tooling is there. And then, quite frankly, more transparency and more regular forms for expressing these software bill of materials will mean that we can have a better insight into the whole supply chain, too, and what's happening with software as it moves through the supply chain. But back to the licensing risks. The licensing risks are things that will suddenly get you when you're not expecting them. And so keeping an eye on that when you're bringing something in, making sure you're using it and you're to the terms the same way as if you wrote a contract with a company you just need to pay attention so you don't have problems down the road i was just going to add if i if i may i think yeah. things have gotten better over the last couple of years and there's work on the horizon to make it even better things like the spdx license expressions make it much easier to express what the license requirements are for a particular package that's something that the ci badge requires basically is say hey you got to tell us what the license is. That's also made a lot easier to automate tools. So, for example, I, you know, the in one project in the badging application itself, it has some, it implements some software. It actually checks every time it downloads a new version of software. You know, what is the license? And we've actually caught out. Like uh, one program used to be open source, they suddenly stopped being open source. They changed their license, and when they updated a new version and we were alerted to that only because we were using a tool that automatically checked all the licenses. And so, you know, I certainly encourage people to include licensing checks as part of their continuation, continuous integration pipeline, just like they should include tests and static analyzers for security and all that stuff as part of their CI pipeline. And then, and, and so that really helps already. And as Kate mentioned, the S-bombs, I think, are going to help things even further. Software bill material. S-bomb sounds a little risque, perhaps. Oh, there's a whole <laughs> bunch. Of, there's actually a whole bunch of efforts ongoing with, in terms of software bill materials about raising awareness. And in particular, we're seeing a lot of interest happening in the medical space these days of making sure that we can have transparency into what's actually in medical devices. And I think this is spreading to a much wider set of our ecosystems. 
but you'll be pricing a lot more about what's happening. What's your software bill of materials or what's your bill of materials for your software and in some cases your hardware. What's, you know, what's your digital bill of materials? Because some of the vulnerabilities are in the silicon and it's the interaction of a whole system that causes issues. If, if, I'm, if I'm building a new, if I'm going to create an open source software project and I Google open source software licenses, am I in a pretty safe space or are there nefarious licenses that I want to avoid? Are there, are there open source licenses that are pretending that they're open source licenses? I, I, think, I, I think that's the easier, better question. And the answer is yes. So I, I, that's actually probably been the biggest risk I, uh, that I've seen is folks saying they're open source, but not. So what I strongly urge folks is if you want to know if something is open source, there's something called the Open Source Initiative, OSI. Go look at their list. There's a couple licenses that for various reasons aren't listed there. The Free Software Foundation is another list. And really, you know, look and see if the OSI or FSF have reviewed and approved it. If not, there's probably a problem. The reality is that the vast, vast, vast majority of open source software is only under a few licenses. And if you check for those, you're, you, know, you, you know you've got open source software. If it says MIT or Apache 2.0 or uh, GPL or LGPL, you know, these are widely, widely used licenses. And if it says, hey, go look here for this complicated, weird license you've never heard of, that's usually a big warning flag that's it's pretending point frank i'm curious as you look at the economics and uh, future of work associated with people doing open source software construction what what kinds of metrics or pieces of what we've talked about which has been pretty technical so far are you seeing as being significant in both economic impacts and and the future of work yeah, so I, I think that's a great point because, you know, we tend to often focus on the technical aspects of everything. But when we think about kind of the health and, and well-being of open source, which, you know, uh, probably most of your listeners recognize that that underpins most of the modern economy at this point, which we're, we're doing our best to, you know, spread that message and let others know about that as well. But, you know, indeed, it's, it's a very, it's humans that are writing the code, right? At least, at least for now until the machines take over. But so understanding, you know, the, the role that um, people play under building that software that's, you know, we've, we've done some studies that have shown that open source has billions of dollars worth of value and under, again, underlies the modern economy. So how do we understand the folks that are actually building it? And so when we think about, you know, the, the technical aspects of it that we've been focused on for a little bit now, that's all been incredibly helpful. But we also want to kind of dig in and understand the human side. And so that's the, the survey that we, we mentioned before that we're running that we'll put a link to in the show notes uh, is really geared at kind of understanding from not only the technical side, but also the human side, the, the health and security and well-being of open source as a whole, but also individual projects that are you know, central to kind of the, the, the open source ecosystem. So you know, we're, we're looking for folks uh, to take this survey to, to help us better understand kind of, you know, the, not, not only what they do with open source and why they do it, which we capture some of the kind of motivations types of, of questions that others have looked at in the past, but also to, in particular, think about the role of, of money in open source. I remember, you know, in the, the early days of open source, I forget who said it, but somebody said that if money entered the open source ecosystem, the whole thing would fall apart. And we're, you know, that may be true in theory, but we've already proven it's incorrect in practice, right? Or at least at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's rather the opposite, I, it, I think. That's right. The right. Foundation, yeah. 
Exactly, right? You know, IBM acquired Red Hat for billions of dollars or whatever it was, and Microsoft's been on a, a tear with open source as well. And so, you know, it, there's, there's money to be had. And the question is, is it, you know, is that changing kind of the incentives behind why people contribute? And if it is, and, you know, there, it's more about the money, that's, that's not necessarily a problem at face value. But when we think about kind of the long-term health of the communities, if somebody, you know, is being paid by their company to contribute to a project, and then they either change jobs or lose their job, or for whatever reason, they're, they're no longer being paid to do that, are they going to continue doing it? And if the answer is no, uh, then that could be a problem for the health of that project. We have, we have, when we have humans making a living and companies making a profit and working together, I wonder if there's a Star Wars metaphor. Is there a dark side of all of this and a light side of all of this that pops I, into your head? I had, not, uh, I had not thought of it that way, but I will, I will respond in kind and say that the, it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's bad or good, but it's all about balance, right? So we balance. need to bring balance to the force, uh, yes. to quote Star Wars. <laughs> And, and to do that, you know, it's, again, it's not that money is, is some would probably say that money in open source is, is evil, um, but I think probably the average sure. contributor would not necessarily say that, but finding... Well, the, they like to eat. Yeah, exactly, right? And so finding the right balance between kind of paid contribution, you know, unpaid contribution, and kind of the, the, the fully backed by a company, you know, that type of open source and, and contributions, and finding this balance so that we, you know, we all agree that open source is important and, and that the health and long-term stability of open source is, is critical now to the, the, the digital economy, not only the digital economy, but the, the, the physical economy too, in many aspects. And so how can we maintain that balance so that the you know, future health is maintained is one of the big uh, questions that we're trying to answer with, with the survey. And one of the things on the chaos project that we have often struggled with, not, not struggled in a terribly, in, not a futile way, but when you're, when you're asked for a survey, you're, you're trying to understand the motivations in a person's head. And that's one of the things that we can't mine from a Git repository. So I imagine that your survey may lead to things that ultimately would be measurable in, in some other way through proxies that are more widely available. Is that fair? Or So in terms of technical aspects? That or te technical or, or I mean, I think, I think one of the things that we don't get at as easily with open source software metrics on chaos is th these motivational questions, these, these questions of things that can't be measured through technology. And, you know, what particular, I mean, what kinds of things are you looking to measure that we can't with trace data from a repo? Yeah. And I, I think that's a great point because I think actually what, what in trace data from a repo, you may pick up on the, the kind of the, the symptoms of, of an issue, right? Because if everybody stops contributing to a project, you'll see that right? and you'll <laughs> right. know there's a problem, but you won't necessarily know why that happened or, or what led to that. Right. And so right. we're, we're looking to kind of think about, you know, some is, is looking at demographic information, simple as that, right? So age, right? Or people, you know, uh, kind of aging out of open source or, or things like that. But, but also thinking about their, you know, their education and training. And so, you know, David talked about, or we were talking before about more of the security things side of things. And so have they been received some sort of training in security and, and that's, you know, encouraging them to do a better job with, you know, securing the code and, and all the dependency stuff we were talking about before. But also even things about just 
you know, maintaining life balance, right? So how much time do you spend on open source and how much of that is directly compensated by, by somebody and how much of it is, is not, right? Because yeah. um, in particular, you know, we've, we've noticed or we've been, I think there's been concern about maintainer burnout. And so we're trying to, you know, also think about the roles of maintainers. We're, we're not only looking for maintainers to answer the survey, but for, for anyone who's contributing to open source. But in particular, I think the maintainers, you know, they hold such a, a key role in the, in the ecosystem that we try to drill down a little bit more into just understanding, you know, why they do what they're doing. And not only that, but why they continue to do what they're doing, because that's the thing that I think, you know, could lead to, to problems down the road. Um, if they're you know happy doing it now, but if life is getting kind of getting in the way of it, then those are important things to to understand for you know again for kind of the future health of the projects. I, I don't know how long you've already been asking participants in the survey, and whether you already are looking at the data. Do you already have some early insights that might be interesting? Yeah, so we, we've been running the survey for probably about a couple of weeks now. Our, our goal is to kind of keep it open until probably the end, towards the end of the summer, just so we can get a good amount of responses from a variety of folks. We, I, we've been looking a little bit, we're, we're trying not to, you know, uh, we don't want the, our interpretation of the overall results to be biased by the ones who, you know, the folks who answered on the earlier side. But we are seeing interesting things around kind of, you know, these these who's getting paid and and we have you know so far we have some good coverage across the world you know so it's just, it's definitely not just a US based you know kind of uh, response so we've been seeing some good coverage across uh, different countries different ages which has been helpful but we haven't dug too much into the results yet because we're waiting to kind of see you know get all of them before we really start to dig in we may have to do a follow up episode where you come on and share the results with us i, I want to hear that episode too Yeah, (laughs) I I want to quickly note that although we've talked a lot about motivations and the uh, survey definitely asks about that, you know, more broadly, it's very much about, you know, trying to understand how we can make sure that open source is secure and sustainable. Motivation is obviously a key part of that. But other things like the practices that we talked about earlier in, in the session, talking about things like you know, are they doing testing and doing security uh, static analysis tools and that sort of thing? We really want to get an understanding of that too, because again, we want to understand the current state of things so that we can make things better. I, I like to tell people that you know it's not that open source software is always secure or that it's always insecure. Like you know, most real things, some is secure, some is far more secure than others. But what we want to do is make things better. Now that the economy depends on this, we want to make things better than they are. There's reasons that people use it, which is great. There's reasons people contribute. That's also great. Let's work on making things even better than they are. We're we're short on time. Are there any places that you suggest people check out uh, to learn more? Or are there any advice that you would give to our listeners towards the end of this episode? Well, I guess I'll put in one, and I presume uh, Frank will put in the other. I mentioned earlier, if you're involved in an open source software project, please go and try to start getting a badge. Bestpractices.coreinfrastructure.org. You just click on the big green, get a badge, and off you go. And Frank, I'm hoping that you'll tell people the URL for the uh, survey. 
Absolutely, yeah. So I, I won't mention the URL for uh, the, the preliminary report from our work with the, the dependencies in the SEA because it's, it's very long, but we'll put that into uh, the show notes. But indeed, the website for the, the survey itself is https colon backslash backslash bit.ly slash CII all caps dash FOSS, F-O-S-S all caps dash capital S U-R-V-E-Y. So CII FOSS survey is the place you can go to take the survey and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Every week on the chaos podcast, we do value add picks. They are random. They are things that can be related to open source software or whatever you're interested in uh, picks of the week. Sometimes they're books, football teams, or pieces of software. And I'd like to kick off our value add pick by calling on you, Kate, and uh, talk about what your value add pick of the week is. Check out the software transparency work that's going on in NTIA at uh, ntia.gov slash SBOM. There's a bunch of reports trying to figure out what the minimum elements are to help improve the transparency and trackability of software in the supply chain. And so a lot of people have been thinking about that and working towards it. And for those who have a chance, Alan Friedman's talking at RSA tonight which is, I guess, Thursday night, and they'll be talking about software transparency. So I think that'll be a good show. I'm planning on tuning in myself. And, and is the, that's on ntia.gov, or how do we find that podcast? Uh, that's RSA's conferences there, and I'll put, the link okay. his, I'll put the link into the RSA session that he's doing. They're being taped, so you should be able to find it. When, as soon as okay, you, as soon as great. I watched one this afternoon, so uh, yep. the taping is good. Georg, your pick of the week. My pick of the week is the course series that the Open Source Initiative and Brandeis University are putting together in open source technology management. I happen to be creating two of those courses on open source communities. The first one is running right now. We are in week two about how we foster and cultivate open source communities and how they are operating. And I'm currently designing the second course, which will start on August 10th, about how do we integrate open source communities in the corporate context. And I'm super grateful for several really experts in the field to agree to be interviewed because I, I'd like to bring in the voices from the open source ecosystem through the course and share those with the students. So that's uh, something I'm, I'm working on right now, and I think it's going to be great. That's great. Thanks, Georg. My panelist pick of the week, I'm Sean, has nothing to do with open source software except maybe a little bit. My COVID-19 streaming movie binge pick of the week, it's a series, is Hannah on Amazon Prime. And if you want to see what a contemporary 16-year-old person looks like when they encounter technology for the first time at the age of 16... It's a phenomenal portrayal of that experience where iPhones and other kinds of technology are discovered for the first time at a very late stage in life. David, do you have a pick of the week? Oh, I'll throw on two. So one is I'll just point you to my, my personal website, dwheeler.com, D-W-H-E-E-L-E-R.com. It's where I post random things. I've got a little blog just random papers that I find interesting about open source or security or whatever. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, you may find that interesting also. 
Something else that really isn't about open source, but it really is about security, is this fun little website that uh, Cloudflare put up called isbgpsafeyet.com. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, I, I see, uh, but um, the internet depends on routing packets of data around. But where, how does the internet know where to route the packets? Well, there's a, a very old, very old <laughs> uh, protocol <laughs> called BGP. Uh -huh. uh, and unfortunately, yeah, that, that helps the major organizations figure out how to route stuff. Unfortunately, it was never originally designed for security. And in a world now where we're all huddling in our houses because of a pandemic, it is absolutely insane that we're still depending on some low-level protocols that currently allow data packets to be basically completely rerouted away and disable the internet possibly for an entire country. So I, I believe we really need to uh, get something of uh, this BGP protocol far more secure there's something well-known to secure it called RPKI. And the problem right now we have is that some ISPs still have not gotten around to securing it. So I suggest go click on isbgpsafeyet.com, see if your ISP is making you safe. And if they're not, go whine to them and tell them to go fix their problem. Because we, now that we're all huddling in our houses, it's time to get that fixed. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Mine is not safe. I just clicked on it and mine is not safe. Sounds like a great premise for a Jason Bourne film if they don't fix it. I, the uh, problem is I don't want to be a star player. <laughs> <laughs> I would much rather it be fixed. Thank you so much. Yes, I agree. Uh, I echo David's concern or, or point that that's been, a, that's been such a problem for so long. I, long before I was a professor, I worked in the cybersecurity world and BGP has just been on everybody's radar, but not fixed for, for decades. Uh, the, the fundamental problem here is that it's very large organizations who are generally monopolies are the ones who have to fix this. And so the only real way to get that fixed is to force them to fix it because it's not, you can't just buy your a local router and fix it. So the best I think we can do is start putting a light on the problem. And that is bgpsafeyet.com helps people figure that out. Am I protected if I have NAT routing behind my home router or no? No. Okay. Not well, at all. <laughs> all right. Well, HTTPS will make, will, will make sure that if you don't get to the right site, it will tell you, but it won't let you get to the right site. It basically allows the internet to be completely disabled for large groups of people. I see. So all the routing, I could put in CNN.com, but it's not going to take me there if it's compromised. That's exactly right. And for a large number of people. And this has been a very, as Frank noted, it's been a very old, very well-known problem. We need to get that fixed now. That's a good idea. Frank, your pick of the week. Sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a little self-promotion, but back to our, towards our talk of open source kind of underlying the modern economy. We actually just released a, a new working paper that looks at, at a global scale at the role of open source in spurring entrepreneurship across uh, basically every country in the world. So we'll put the link to that working paper in the, in the show notes, but it's, you know, it's, it's super in the weeds and super technical, but the, the high-level takeaway is that in countries where there are increased levels of contributions to open source, we see there's actually more entrepreneurship, more venture capital financing of, of tech companies, 
and a whole bunch of other types of outcomes that are, are very good for uh, the economy as a whole. And so when we, you know, say open source is, is really underlying the modern economy, it's not, you know, just that it's running your computer or your phone or your car. It's also leading to all these entrepreneurial ventures that are, you know, leading to economic growth within developed countries and developing countries. That sounds very promising. I look forward to reading that paper. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share it with your friends, your colleagues, your mom. If you have ideas for future episode topics or even like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos, that's with two S's, dot community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, their enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and next-generation network. Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com chaos.